Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Christianity stands or falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, It stands or falls on whether or not there is a true and genuine incarnation. Most of us would be familiar with the doctrine of the incarnation as it is embedded in the prologue of John's gospel where we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But many of us would not be equally familiar with the fact that the doctrine of the Incarnation is also clearly uh, taught and affirmed in the epistle of John. And so instead of going to the prologue of John's gospel, join me this morning in the prologue of John's first letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where we're going to see a life like no other, Jesus the Incarnate Word. John, 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. When it comes to who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished, C.S. Lewis basically said there were three options. He's Lord, liar, or lunatic. But actually, there are four. Uh, He could have been a liar. That is, he said he was somebody that he was not. Uh, He could have been a lunatic. He said he was something that he thought he was, but in actuality, he was not. Uh, He could be a legend, and that is, people later came along and embellished the truth about him, creating myths and and legends that uh, turned him into a god, when in actuality, he was nothing more than a simple man who maybe said some pretty interesting things and maybe even had some real religious or spiritual insight. Then, of course, the last option is that he is the Lord. He is indeed God who became flesh. And wouldn't it be nice if we could, for example, sit down today and have a conversation with his best friend, someone that spent three and a half years with him and and observed him and watched him, listened to him teach, uh, was even there when he died and had uh, the Lord's mother entrusted unto his care, and then later saw the risen Lord, and even after that on the island of Patmos received an incredible revelation concerning the coming glorified Christ. And wouldn't that be nice? And the fact of the matter is, though we can't talk to him face to face, we can read what he wrote. And we can this morning actually let an eyewitness, someone that actually was there, that was with him, that spent time with him, tell us exactly what he saw and what he heard and what he experienced when he encountered what he says here is the word of life, the life, eternal life, his son, Jesus Christ. 
Uh, this prologue of John does not have a specified audience or author, but it does have within it wonderful truth that is true anywhere, any place, and any time. And as you work your way through the five chapters of John's gospel, you discover that three themes come around again and again and again. Uh, first, what do you believe about Jesus and have you trusted him? Uh, secondly, are you obeying the commandments of God? And then thirdly, are you rightly loving one another? And so what I want us to do this morning is just take a few minutes and look at these first four verses where John unwraps for us truths about a life that is like no other. Three of them I will extract for us this morning. First of all, John says in verse 1 and verse 2 that we should have a passion to know this life. He uses the word which four times in verse 1. The first one kind of stands out uniquely and then the other three are packaged together. He begins by saying that which was from the beginning. Of course, there are four beginnings that you find in the Bible. There's the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Mark in chapter 1 verse 1 talks about this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John's prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then here is a fourth beginning, that which was from the beginning. And it's almost certain that John has in mind here not the beginning of creation or even the beginning of a gospel gospel, but rather he has in mind the same kind of beginning that he alluded to in his gospel. In other words, this one was there when the beginning began. He was before the beginning. He is Jesus, the Christ, who was from the beginning. What he is simply affirming here, first of all, is he is divine. He has always existed and he will forever exist. He was there in the beginning. Contrary to what some false teachers said in John's day, later in the early church, and even today where false teachers continue to attack the true teaching of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, there never was a time when he was not. Never. He was indeed before the beginning. He is from the beginning. He was in the beginning. And why would John say that? In fact, I like the way Mark Dever analyzes verse 1. He says, first of all, John is going to tell you who he is. Then John is going to tell you how he knows that he is this particular person. So John begins by telling you uh, he's God. He is that one who was in the beginning. Now, the question that naturally arises, John, how do you know that? And he would begin by saying, well, first of all, I heard what he said. After all, it was Jesus who said in John chapter 8 and verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. He there identifies himself with the great I am of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Later in that same gospel, John records him saying, uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And so John would say to us, I believe he is God. I believe he is eternal. I believe he has always existed because that's exactly what he said to us himself with his own words. So John would say to us this morning as we begin to think on the theme of the incarnation, understand the one who became incarnate, uh, he's always existed, he's always been there, and there will never be a time when he will not be. He is divine. 
But then secondly, John also says in verse 1 that he is human. And John now presents a rigorous defense of the reality and the truthfulness of a genuine incarnation. And again, remember, this is being written by a friend. This is being written by his best friend. This is being written by one who was an apostle. John begins by telling us that he was indeed truly and genuinely human. And he makes a fourfold argument there in verse 1 and verse 2. First of all, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. John says, we heard him teach uh, with our own ears. We heard the things that came out of his mouth. And as the Bible says, he spoke like no other man ever spoke. Secondly, John says, we saw him with our eyes. And to emphasize this, no less than three times in the prologue, John will draw attention to the fact that we saw him. But then he adds another phrase there. He says, not only have we seen him with our eyes, we looked upon him. And the idea there is of an intense gazing. Uh, in our day and time, if uh, somebody's messing with you, you know, with their eyes, you might say, man, man that dude was eyeballing me. Uh, the other day I was driving through the uh, shopping center, driving under the speed limit like I always do, and as I was moving through the parking lot, a guy came around a little further out than he should, and I had to stop, and so I looked at him, but I won't tell you what. Uh, he eyeballed me. I mean, he looked back at me, and if eyes were, you know, lasers, I'd be gone. I, I would have been vaporized. I mean, he was just, you know, checking me out and looking me in. And so being the brave person that I am, I went on away and got away from him because I, I, I did not want to have any kind of encounter. Could you imagine reading in the paper this week that the president of seminary, Southeastern Seminary, got in a fight with a guy in the parking lot because he was eyeballing him? No, that, that would not uh, fare well for my future or for our reputation. And so what? What John is saying is, we eyeballed him. I mean, we checked him out well. We looked at him with a great intensity. We, we watched every move that he made. But then John says, thirdly, we touched him with our hands. I'll come back to that in a moment. But John is simply saying uh, he was real. Uh, he was flesh and blood. In fact, he told Thomas following the resurrection, go ahead and put your hand, if you like, in the nail prints in my hand and the scar at my side. He was a real flesh and blood person. And so John says, we, we heard him. John says, we really looked carefully at him. John says, we touched him. He's no ghost. He's no phantom. And so he says, now, fourthly, we testify. The life was made manifest, verse 2, and we have seen it. And we both testify, a present tense verb, and proclaim, a present tense verb. We continually testify and we continually proclaim as bona fide eyewitnesses of this one who was manifest. The NIV says this one who has appeared. Now, I'd like to make a couple of observations both historically and theologically about this one that John says we have an audible we have a visible and we have a tangible witness of his reality. Historically, John was confronting a spiritual movement, a mysticism of his day that eventually would be full-blown Gnosticism. Uh, it was in an incipient form at this particular time. But there were some common characteristics of this kind of movement, no matter where you found it, no matter what flavor it came in. Basically, two things were always said by those who bought into this kind of mystical view of reality. One, they said, you know, salvation comes by knowledge. 
they were intellectual elitists. And uh, so as a result of that particular uh, conviction, they tended to look down upon common people and others who did not have enlightened knowledge. Uh, by the way, not much has changed. Uh, you go today to a university or a college and you there engage the Gnostics of our day who claim to have a superior knowledge to what you have been raised on in your churches. I still remember Timothy George speaking from this platform several years ago giving a lecture. And he shared with us that he had grown up in his grandmother's home in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then eventually God led him to Harvard. And he made the statement, uh, I went through Harvard, but I'm not from Harvard. And he made the point that he never moved past, I love this, he never moved past the theology that he learned at the knee of his grandmother. And you see, sometimes we get caught up, don't we, in our quest for knowledge, and that's what you had going on in the first century. And so they basically affirmed that salvation did not come by redemption or by atonement, but salvation came by knowledge. And then secondly, because they were steeped in Platonic philosophy, they had a particular view of matter, and matter for them was evil, or at least it was inferior. Now, you can do the math. If you believe that matter is evil and inferior, then you cannot affirm a true and genuine incarnation of God coming into this world and taking on flesh. That's why John uses that unusual language that I read a moment ago when he says, we handled him, we touched him. He was confronting the Gnostics of the day who were either saying, like the Docetists, he appeared to be human and he appeared to be a flesh and blood individual, but he was a phantom, he was a ghost. Or maybe he was even confronting Serentius who came along and said, well, the man Jesus was born, but the Christ Spirit came down upon him at the baptism and, and empowered him to do extraordinary things and say incredible things. But that Christ Spirit left him, after all, at the cross. Don't you remember Jesus said, it was one of their favorite verses, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Serentius said, yes, the man Jesus was born and the man Jesus died. And in the interim between his baptism and his crucifixion, the Christ spirit was upon him. John will particularly address that form of Gnosticism in chapter 5. Here in chapter 4, I believe he is addressing that form of the docetists who claim he was nothing more than a mirage. He was nothing more than a phantom. In our day and time, we might say he was nothing more than a myth. You know, theologians talk about what is called the scandal of the Incarnation. And what we usually mean by that is that modern man finds it a scandal, a stumbling block, that God could actually leave heaven, come down here and take on the form of a human person, that he could actually become man. But actually, I think the scandal of the incarnation is not so much theological as it is spiritual and personal in terms of your sin and your unwillingness to bow the knee to King Jesus. I was in preparing this particular message, reading a sermon. I read lots of sermons when I prepare one. I'd read several by Charles Spurgeon and read one by Thabiti and read one by Sam Storms. And I also read one by John Piper. And it was John Piper who really brought to my mind's eye what is really at stake in this scandal concerning the incarnation. So you'll see it on the screen. Let me just read what Dr. Piper says. I think he's exactly right. Many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a merely spiritual reality. 
But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. When God becomes man, I don't think it is so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the Incarnation. No, the stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And the particularity of his work and word flow out into history in the form of a particular inspired book written in the particular languages of Greek and Hebrew that claims a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We, we can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the bill of human rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Why, it is totalitarian. It's authoritarian. Imperialism, despotism, usurpation, absolutism. Who does he think he is? He thinks he is God. Benjamin Franklin was a brilliant man, but tragically was not a Christian. And in March of 1790, he wrote this in a letter to a friend. As to Jesus of Nazareth, I think the system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes, and I have, with most of the present dissenters in England, some doubts as to his divinity, though it's a question I do not dogmatize upon having never studied it and... I think it needless to busy myself with it now. I would submit to all of us this morning that it is never needless to busy ourselves with the question of who Jesus is. John says we should have a passion to know this life. Secondly, John says we should have a passion to share this life. Look at what he writes there in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. By the way, there's the main verb of the verse, of the prologue. That which we have seen, we proclaim to you so that you too may have one fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is a family fellowship. It is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
There's no way to overstate the impact that this life had on the lives of the disciples. They really did turn the world upside down because he had turned their world upside down. And as a result of that, they were compelled to take this good news, to take this gospel to the nations. Indeed, they felt that they must. They felt that they absolutely had no choice. And indeed, basically what we have here is this. What they had experienced, they wanted others to experience. What they had in Jesus was so wonderful, they absolutely had to share it with others. Now, when we talk about having a passion to share this life, there's a twofold aspect to this sharing. One is the idea of fellowship, and the other is the idea of family. John would say first, we want everyone into our fellowship. Verse 3 begins with, again, the repetition of the phrase, that which we have seen and heard. So for a third time, he emphasizes this idea of seeing. And then the main verb finally shows up there in verse 3, translated in the ESV, the word proclaim. The Holman Christian Standard, the New American Standard, translated declare, and, and the net translates it announce. So we want to proclaim, we want to declare, we want to announce a message to you, what we have heard, what we have have seen what we've looked upon and what we've touched, we must share with others. Isn't it interesting? There is a missionary impulse in the doctrine of the incarnation. And again, to summarize it quite simply, John would say, because he came, we must go. Now, what is it that John wants them to enjoy? He says there, so that you too may have fellowship with us. That word fellowship, koinonia occurs four times in verses 3 through 7. Uh, in a sense, it could be simplified by saying John wants us to be friends with one another through Jesus. When we meet Jesus, we, we become friends. We now have a, a unique fellowship, a, a common sharing. But it's not just a common sharing of anything. It's a common sharing of something that's really important and something that's really significant. You, you now have the same values. You now have the same beliefs. You now have the same goals. You love the same things. And folks, it's a, a fellowship that far transcends any fellowship that we might know in this world and in this life because John says, not only is it that I want to invite you into the fellowship, I want to invite you into a fellowship family. He says there, our fellowship is with the Father and our fellowship is with His Son, Jesus Christ. No, this is not the fellowship that one enjoys in a college fraternity or sorority. It's not even the, the fellowship that we might enjoy when we're pulling for our favorite sports team or we're pulling for our community club. Uh, of course, I could not help but make a quick comment about the, the tragedy that occurred Saturday night in, in Atlanta, Georgia, between the evil empire of Alabama and the, the gracious, godly empire of the Georgia Bulldogs and... Uh, why, you know, you don't down the ball on the eight-yard line. with but, but I understand. I understand the thinking. Uh, Alabama was discombobulated, and, and they were. And, and who knows what happens if the ball doesn't get tipped. And so there's the, the weeping and gnashing of the fellowship of the Bulldog Nation, and there's the rejoicing, the celebrating of the Tide Nation. But you know what, brothers and sisters, and this is from the losing side, it's just a game. It's just a game. 
And the fact of the matter is, the kind of fellowship that we have in Jesus so far transcends anything that we would know in this life. Sometimes we make the statement that blood is thicker than water. Well, I'll tell you this, the Spirit is thicker than blood. And the fellowship that we now enjoy with God as our Father and Jesus as our Savior, that transcends anything we could ever know. By the way, never lose sight of the fact it's a package deal. You don't get the Father without the Son. And when you get the Son, you get the Father. John will make this explicit in chapter 2 and verse 23 where he will write, No one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so now we enter into an intimate fellowship that's family with a perfect Savior and a perfect Heavenly Father. And we know because we proclaim this message to the ends of the earth that at the end, every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation is going to be a part of this one glorious family. Do you realize this morning that you have more in common with a Chinese Christian, an African sister, a Hispanic brother than you do your next-door neighbor who looks like you, votes like you, and has the same taste that you do. No, they are actually strangers. That's why it's so wonderful when you get to travel uh, the international world and you meet brothers and sisters in other countries, and it really is like we've always known each other. Why? Because we've all got the same daddy. We've all got the same Father, And it is this eternal life that transforms our lives, and it's this eternal life that we have to have a passion to share. But then finally, in verse 4, John also says we need to have a passion to enjoy this life, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let me be quick here. Four times in this gospel, John gives you a key that helps you unlock what this gospel is all about. You know, when he wrote his, his gospel... He puts the purpose statement at the end in chapter 20 and verse 31 that you might believe and have the gift of eternal life. But here in this particular letter, he gives us actually four keys or four purpose statements. It gives us insight into what it means to enjoy the life of God that's ours in Christ. I'll just note them for you very quickly. First of all, he says in verse 4 of chapter 1 that this life will promote full joy. These things I write to you that our joy may be full. He's just simply quoting the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 and verse 11. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Again, in John chapter 16 and verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So he wants us, first of all, to promote joy that is full. Secondly, he wants us to press on in holiness. Chapter 2, verse 1, here's the same phrase. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John will make it very clear in this letter, he does not believe that we can be sinless, but he does believe that we can sin less because of the fact that we've now been born again by the Spirit of God and have the eternal life of God himself inside of us. You say, but what happens when I do sin? Oh, that's why chapter 2 and verse 2 is so good. He is the propitiation for our sins. And verse 1, he is the advocate for our sins. So he wants you to sin less, but when you do sin, don't worry, there's an advocate and there's an atonement who takes care of all your sins. So he wants us to press on in holiness. 
His third idea in terms of fullness of joy is that we pursue correct doctrine. Look at chapter 2 and verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Isn't it interesting? John writes a book about joy and he says, let me fill it with theology. John wants you to enjoy the new life that you have in Christ, but he understands that requires that you think well theologically. He understood that theology matters. And he understood that we don't have the option to take what I call a cafeteria approach either to Jesus or to theology. Again, work your way through the five chapters and you'll discover that John is adamantly opposed to what I call a Jesus plus theology or a Jesus minus theology. Add to Jesus, take away from Jesus, you're missing the biblical Jesus. And then finally, and maybe this is the all-encompassing intent for our joy to be full, he wants us to provide assurance of salvation. Chapter 5 and verse 13, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants us to understand this morning it's possible to be saved in doubt. It is possible to be saved and have doubts. Uh, Every now and then, a well-meaning evangelist usually will say something that, in my judgment, though well-meaning, is heretical. And they will make a statement like this. Well, if you're 99% certain or 99% sure that you're saved, you are 100% lost. That is a heresy. That is a false teaching. That is not true. You say, how do you know that? Verse 13 of chapter 5. John says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. When we lived in Louisville, my youngest son, Tim, who's in ministry today there back in Louisville, uh, got with me one night. He was about 16 or 17, and he is not the emotional type, but he was emotional that evening. And and he said to me, Daddy, I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. I'm not sure that I'm saved. I'm I'm going through a a, a real, real intense period of doubt. And so I did the same thing for my son that I would do for any one of you. I said, well, sweetheart, let let me ask you a couple of questions. When you think about Jesus hanging there and dying there on the cross, what is your response? And tears began to run down his face. And he said, well, Daddy... I just can't hardly imagine that he would love me so much to die on the cross and and take away my sins. And I simply said, well, darling, that's not what a lost man would think. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that the cross to a lost person is foolishness. It's a stumbling block. And so if you were here and you are here this morning and you're struggling with your assurance, you're not certain of your salvation, I I just want to immediately say to you, look to the cross. Look to the cross and tell me what's your response. If you find it to be foolish, if you find it to be nonsensical, if if you say, as some theologians do today, I I don't want to look at some uh, exhibit of what theologians called uh, divine child abuse where God is abusing his compliant son. The whole idea of his bearing in his body the penalty of my sin makes no sense. The odds are that even though you're here at college or seminary, you're, you're lost. You don't know Christ. Because to look to the cross in faith is to recognize that there in his body he bore in full the full penalty of your sin. God crushed his son so he would not have to crush you. 
Later in John's gospel, he'll say, uh, ask the question, am I obeying the things that the Lord has asked me to do? Not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. And then he'll ask a third test, are you loving others? Or is there consuming hatred in your heart toward other people? And John would say, check out your love life. Check out your obedience. But most of all, look to the cross and see how you respond. In A.D. 325, the Council of Nicaea was convened because of very popular, very smart, very talented, very gifted presbyter named Arius had come along. And Arius made statements like this in his various sermons and writings. Quote, the sun had a beginning. Quote, the sun was not always. Quote, there was a time when he was not God, when he was not. Quote, God was not always Father. Thankfully, the Lord raised up two men, one by the name of Alexander, another man that most of us would know, a man by the name of Athanasius. And though they were swimming against the tide, they stood strong. And as a result, they won the day and the church set forth in A.D. 325 what we know as the Nicene Creed. You know, the mainline denominations often recite the Nicene Creed in their worship services, but many of them don't believe it. We believe it, but never recite it. Well, this morning, we're going to do something about that. And so I'm going to go ahead and ask our musicians to make their way to their place to serve us as we bring our service to an end in just a moment. But I'm going to ask you to go ahead at this point in time and stand with me, because up on the screen, you're going to see the Nicene Creed. And what I simply want us to do this morning as an act of worship and as an act of confession to recite this wonderful creed together, basically saying two things, three things. One, this is what we believe the Bible teaches. Two, this is what the church has always believed. And three, this is what I believe as well. So join me with me in reciting the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. The Bible teaches it, we confess it, and we believe it. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, 
working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.